You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Today is Palm Sunday. You'll remember that we, in working through the Gospel of John, uh, talked about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Um, But that was a long time ago. Um, It's crazy how much content uh, we've been able to cover in between the triumphal entry and the the crucifixion of Christ. So in a matter of a week um, time frame chronologically, we've covered several months worth of content in sermons. And so we were actually looking at um, the Palm Sunday passage back in October. Um, And that was only six days ago when it comes to Jesus's crucifixion. And so looking back way back in October, we talked about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. We talked about seeing him as the King that he is, um, that he presented himself, not as a earthly victorious King, but a spiritually victorious King. Um, we talked about those coming to, to see him. The Greeks mainly were coming out of right motivation to see him. Um, and then we talked about the, the sacrifices that were going to be involved in Jesus uh, and his crucifixion. He talked himself about uh, dying like a grain um, and, and being buried into the ground and producing fruit. And we talked about what that meant for our own life. Um, we talked about uh, living our life in the context of eternal life. He talks to us about losing our life so that we can gain it, hating our life so that we can gain it, and um, ultimately following him in, in a mindset of service. And so that was way back in October. Um, fast forwarding now to today. Uh, We're going to keep pressing through the Gospel of John, looking particularly where we left off last week um, with the death of Jesus and now the subsequent burial of Jesus. Last week we saw um, that the cross is God's declaration that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of all kinds in fulfillment of promises made long ago. And now that he has finished that work, he calls us to respond in, in faith and obedience to him. And so the cross is God declaring that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of all kinds. And we see that in the fact that um, all nations and the worst sinners are invited to put faith and trust in Jesus, right? That that sign that declares Jesus is the King of the Jews written in multiple languages so that everybody present at his crucifixion could see the declaration that God was making about him being King. But then we also see that he's a a king and a savior for the worst kinds of sinners because we see that he's crucified in the midst of two thieves and it's one of those thieves who responds in faith and joins Jesus in paradise. We saw as well that the cross is a um, fulfillment of promises made long ago, right? We saw the prophecy of Jesus being crucified between thieves. We saw the prophecy of his garment being gambled for. We saw the prophecy of the Uh, the sour drink being offered to him, and the fulfillment of those prophecies uh, through the events that John records about the crucifixion. And then we saw the response that's supposed to come from the crucifixion, that we're to put our faith and our obedience in following Jesus, that the cross gives us responsibilities, that we are to die to self, we're to take up our cross daily, we're to submit to him in obedience, we're to say goodbye to these things that were finished at the cross, right? That we're no longer in bondage to the law, we're no longer in bondage to sin, we're no longer under condemnation, we're no longer subjected to death, and and we don't have to fear Satan, that we've been set free from all of those things. And so 
Um, a, a good reminder to us last week from the crucifixion scene is that it's a declaration from God um, that Jesus saves all kinds of sinners from all nations um, and that it's a fulfillment of promises made long ago. And in light of all that, our response should be faith and obedience. And so that brings us to John chapter 19 today, verse 31. And so I want to read for you there uh, our passage for today. It says, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. <coughs> Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh, and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Our summary sentence for today. The factual evidence supporting both the verified death and public burial of Jesus gives us the foundation needed for believing and hoping in the resurrection of Jesus. The factual evidence supporting both the verified death and public burial of Jesus gives us the foundation needed for believing and hoping in the resurrection of Jesus. For our kids, because we know Jesus died and was buried, we can believe he is now risen. I was, I'll be honest, I was shocked at the um, small amount of content that was found in most of the commentaries that I used about these verses. Uh, some commentaries skipped over them completely. Some made some passing comments about this passage. Um, I don't think I came across any of them that, that really dealt with this as its own sermon, right? Most of them tacked it on to the end of last week's sermon or others kind of attached it to uh, the sermon that we'll look at next week with the resurrection of Jesus. To me, it's significant enough content that needs to be its own sermon. So it's nice that next week works out time frame wise that we'll talk about the resurrection on Easter, but there was no manipulation needed to make that happen. It just kind of, it just kind of happened that way. And, and as I looked at it, uh, several weeks ago, I realized this is going to lay out perfectly, and I don't have to do anything to make that happen, right? Because this content right here, I believe, really needs to be its own separate sermon, because I believe the truths that are contained here are so important to our acceptance and belief about the resurrection. Um, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that, that familiar passage to us about the resurrection, when Paul talks about how 
necessary it is for us to continue in our faith. He talks about both the death and the burial of Jesus, right? Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, right? Why is this so important? Because Jesus has to die and he has to be buried for him to then be raised, right? So if we're going to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, if we're going to believe in Easter Sunday, we're going to believe that Jesus is back from the dead, and he's the first fruits of what we get to look forward to in our, in our own right, in our own resurrection, our own new body. The only way that that makes sense, the only way that that's possible is if Jesus truly died and if his body went into the grave, so that it could then come back out again, right? And so what we're going to see today is kind of the foundation for why we can believe in the resurrection. For us to believe in a resurrection, there has to be a, a verified, valid death. And for us to believe in the resurrection, we have to know where that body was supposed to be. And we have to know that it's no longer there, right? Um, because without those things, the resurrection... Uh, leaves us doubting, right? Because the, the first thoughts that we have if we hear about someone back from the dead is, well, maybe he wasn't really dead or or, or maybe it's not true and, and the body's still in the grave and we just need to go find it, right? And so the content today removes those doubts for us. It, it makes the resurrection all the more believable when we see the truth of what's contained in this passage here in John chapter 19 that he did die, that he was buried, right? And then he can therefore be raised to life. John's going to continue to build off the prophetic fulfillment that we saw last week regarding Jesus's death. He's already mentioned that prophecy of thieves, the garment being gambled for, the sour drink. He's going to add more prophecy to our understanding today to strengthen our faith in the resurrection. In John chapter 19, verse 36, Look what he says, why he's writing these things. For these things took place, right? Like he's, he's letting us know these things happened. They absolutely happened, and here's why they happened. They took place that Scripture might be fulfilled, right? These things fulfill promises long ago. He's still building off of what he told us last week. And then in verse 35, so backing up one verse before that, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. So not only did these things happen, not only did they fulfill Scripture, which tells us that every single detail of Jesus' crucifixion is important because God's controlling every single detail for this big purpose. And the big purpose is found in verse 35, that we would believe, that we would believe that all of this has purpose. This isn't an accidental death. This isn't a, um, an unfortunate situation. This isn't plans gone bad, right? This is very intentional, and John is writing in such a way so that we will believe that, that we will believe the death of Jesus has purpose, that it has significance, and that it demands a response from us. I don't know about you. I'm the type of person who needs all kinds of details to believe radical stories, 
right? Somebody comes to me and, and tries to say, man, you won't believe what I heard or what I saw or what I read. Most of the time, my response is, can you send me the link to that article? Or do you have any pictures of that? Or was there somebody else there that could also verify that? So no offense to you, because I'm sure I've done that to some of you before. When somebody comes and tells me a story, I'm, I'm not typically apt to believe crazy radical stuff unless I have some evidence to back it up, right? So for me, I'm so thankful that a man like John decides to write the type of details that he writes here, because for me, it's the evidence that I need. It's the evidence that I need to verify um, and to, to hold fast to the truths of the resurrection, okay? Um, so that's kind of by way of introduction. That's why this passage is so important, um, because it, it really gives us the foundation that we need to believe in the resurrection. All right, so let's jump into our notes. I'm going to give you two things today that I want you to believe as points of application. So I'm going to try to keep it real simple today. Um, give you two points that I want you to believe. I'm going to give you some implications that I think come from this passage of scripture and then I'm going to give you some application um, to go away from this passage with today, okay? So number one in our notes, I want us to believe, back it up, or, no, you're, you're good. Um, believe that Jesus really died making a resurrection needed. Believe that Jesus really died making a resurrection needed. You can't have a resurrection unless death, unless death occurred, right? You can't have somebody being raised to life unless that person was really Dead. And so it's so important, and I think John knew that, it's so important for us to clearly see the death of Jesus so that we can then believe in the resurrection. There is no resurrection if Jesus didn't really die, right? Maybe he resuscitated, maybe he fainted, maybe he comes out of a coma. The only way it's really a resurrection is if he really died. And I think John goes to great lengths to make sure that we see that Jesus really did die, and he wants us to believe that. Right? He says, I've written these things. They took place. They fulfilled scripture, but I've written them so that you will believe. And so what I want to challenge you with this morning is to believe that Jesus really died, making a resurrection needed for our kids. Jesus died on the cross. Um, his real human body uh, experienced real death, and his spirit left his body. Right? He really died, making a resurrection needed. Number one, underneath that. Jesus dies as the true Passover lamb. Jesus dies as the true Passover lamb. Now, this section right here fulfills the prophecy that, that John mentions. Not one of his bones will be broken. This comes from Psalm chapter 34, verses 19 and 20. The prophecy that his bones would remain unbroken. Now, this comes up. Because the passage tells us it's the day of preparation, the bodies would, uh, in hopes that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate their legs might be broken. <clears throat> they might be taken away, right? So <clears throat> the Jewish people have this goal. They're trying to ensure that these three men, the two thieves and Jesus, die, and they want to get them off the cross as quickly as they can because they don't want the land to be defiled going into the Sabbath, especially going into the Passover Sabbath, right? So in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, Deuteronomy 21, 22 and 23. So going back to the Old Testament law, God tells them if they have to kill somebody, if they have to hang somebody on a tree, um, they can't leave the body up all night. Body has to come down. That body is cursed. 
to leave it up overnight would defile the land. So the last thing that the Jews want, who are so um, passionate about these small details of the law, they kill Jesus and they're like, we got to get him off the cross because if he stays up there, he'll defile the land. And we're trying to have the Passover. We're trying to celebrate the Sabbath. And so they want his legs broken. What we see in this passage, though, is that Jesus gives up the spirit before the legs ever need to be broken, right? It's Jesus who chooses when he dies and how he dies, not man. And this is this is significant because Jesus hasn't hung on the cross long enough to typically die. It, it, it hasn't been long enough for a typical crucifixion to carry out death. It's why we see the other two thieves having to have their legs broken. Now, part of that is probably due to the, um, the scourging that took place for Jesus. We have no idea if these other two men were scourged to the extent that Jesus was. So maybe the blood loss isn't there. Maybe the, the fatigue's not there that Jesus is experiencing. We know that you died typically on, on the cross by asphyxiation. You could not breathe, right? And so that's why Jesus had his feet nailed to the cross so that he could push up and, and expand his lungs and receive breath, right? And so due to fatigue, due to exhaustion, due to blood loss, whatever it is, Jesus surrenders his spirit willfully on his own. And we know that Jesus has taught his disciples, I lay my life down so that I can take it back up again, right? And so this is, this is extremely important. The legs don't need to be broken because Jesus, Jesus willfully dies for us, right? He willfully surrenders his spirit. The other two men, their legs need to be broken. Jesus does not. Now, this is significant because... We're talking about Jesus being our Passover lamb, right? Like we're talking about the Passover and the lamb, all of all of what occurred in uh, Egypt and Exodus, right? The lamb's blood being shed, it being wiped on the doorpost, the death angel passing over and excusing uh, the sins of those who have the blood showing. All of that is, to, is supposed to be a shadow of Jesus, right? It's supposed to be a foreshadowing of, of the greater lamb to come. In the discussion, though, about the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, and Numbers chapter 9, verse 12, both those passages, so the original passage when the Passover happens in Exodus, and then later on in the wilderness when God's giving his law and telling people this is how we will continue to celebrate the Passover moving forward, both accounts tell the people the lamb can't have any broken bones or he's disqualified. He can't be the Passover lamb if the, if the bro- bones are broken in any way. So this is significant because there's iron type proof here that Jesus is the Passover lamb all the way down the, to the small detail that his lamb, that his bones can't be broken for him to be the lamb. His bones cannot be broken. Right. And so God protects the bones the entire time through the scourging, through the beatings, through the carrying of the cross, through the torture, the bones never break. And John sees that as significant to point out to us. So the soldier takes this hammer, breaks the legs of the two thieves besides Jesus. He's coming to strike the legs of Jesus himself. God steps in and says, that ain't happening. These bones aren't going to be broken. He's already dead. And it's, 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 it's not even enough to say that he was already dead before, but the, but the guy went ahead and broke his legs. Like, God doesn't even allow that to happen, right? 
Think about it. Just as in the mundane things that you do at work, it would not be far-fetched to think that to ensure that Jesus is dead, that the soldier would have gone ahead and broke his legs just to make sure. But that's not how he does it, right? Instead of doing that to make sure that Jesus is dead, he takes the spear and pokes it through the side of Jesus, right? God steps in and God protects the bones. What's crazy is that the Jews are doing all of this so that they can celebrate and probably truly in their minds celebrate this, this Passover because Jesus is dead now, right? So not only are they celebrating the Passover, they're celebrating the victory of getting rid of Jesus at this Passover. And, and what's crazy is they're celebrating a feast that represents the one that they had just killed. The reminder that I would want to leave you with here is that even when things look like they're spiraling, they are only spiraling out of our control, not God's, right? Things might look like they're spiraling, and they, they certainly are when it comes to our control, right? Things right now in our culture, completely out of our control, and it's spiraling in ways that we don't know sometimes what to even do with it, right? None of us can predict what this week looks like. None of us can predict what two weeks out look like, and that's the first time that I can say that in a long time, that I don't know what the next two weeks look like. I don't know what we're doing this summer. I don't know what we're doing next fall, right? Things are completely out of our control right now. Things were completely out of the disciples' control at this point. But everything remains in God's control, all the way down to these minute details of Jesus' bones not being broken, him dying exactly how the scriptures say that he would die. He dies as the true Passover lamb. Number two, he dies at the hands of master killers. He dies at the hands of master killers, okay? So Jesus dies as the true Passover lamb. Bones remain unbroken, right? Now he's going to die. We'll see if we can get that slide up for you. At the hands of master killers. And this fulfills the prophecy of the piercing. So John says, these things happen so scripture could be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on him whom they have pierced. That passage comes from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. We have verification that Jesus is dead. He's a real man with a real body and a real death. Bodily fluids only come from real bodies. This isn't a fake. This isn't Jesus uh, appearing as a man in spirit form. As Hebrews says, he is a man so that he can sympathize with everything that we go through, right? He took on human flesh. It's why we believe these things, right? We don't just believe it because Hebrews tells us that. We believe it because we have firsthand eyewitnesses, firsthand eyewitnesses who are saying this man had bodily fluids coming out of him when he died, right? And those bodily fluids verify his death. This debunks the, the, the theory that some people have come up with to explain away the resurrection that, that Jesus only fainted or, or what's called the swoon theory that he he, um, he resuscitated in the tomb, right? That under the massive amount of blood, blood loss and trauma, it looked like he was dead. And because they were so um, inexperienced with medicine like we are today, unlike how we are today, they, they thought he was dead. They buried him and he ended up coming back to life once he got cooled off and once he uh, had some time for his body to recover. Um, people want to explain away the resurrection and say that he resuscitated in the, th- the tomb. The problem with that is that The the Romans were master killers. They knew how to kill people. We see in the other gospel accounts that that Pilate questioned 
these soldiers, and they 100% verified he is dead. We have the bodily fluids to prove it, right? And on top of that, logically, nobody's coming back out of the tomb three days after what Jesus just went through and convincing anybody, convincing anybody that his body is the type of body that you would want, right? Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. He certainly did not faint. We have verification of his death. And we see even this pierced side show up again. John chapter 20, verse 27, Jesus challenges Thomas and says, look at the look at the, um, the scars in my hands. But then he even tells him maybe the lesser known uh, piece that Jesus encourages. He says, stick your hand in my side. Like the, the piercing is still there as well. And then even in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, we're told that when Jesus comes back, everybody will see him come, including those who pierced his side. Right, That piercing of the side is significant. It fulfills scripture, but it verifies his death. Verifies his death. Those who killed Jesus will see him on the day that he comes back. Right, Believe that Jesus really died, making a resurrection needed. The resurrection is necessary. It is needed because Jesus died. Number two, believe that Jesus's body placement was known making a resurrection probable. Believe that Jesus's body placement was known, making a resurrection probable. And what's crazy to think is that you can actually argue that the resurrection is the most probable resolution to all the evidence that that is brought to the table. Um, And one of the reasons that it is the probable solution for everything that we read in scripture, for all the extra biblical evidence that we have as well is because his body placement was known, right? The place that you would go to debunk the resurrection, right? The tomb, you would would pull the body out and say, he's not back from the dead. Here is his body. Here is proof that he is still dead. They can't do that because it's gone, right? For our kids, Jesus was buried in a real tomb, Number one, the body was publicly claimed by followers of Jesus, right? Publicly claimed by followers of Jesus. It says after these things, so after they've argued for the legs to be broken, after the soldiers have found Jesus to already be dead, after they pierce his side, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. We have two men that step forward to take Jesus' body. One is Joseph of Arimathea. One is Nicodemus. These are both labeled as private followers of Jesus that now take public steps of identification with him. Right? So these are guys that are, that are kind of in the background, in the shadows following Jesus, that now put themselves in the public eye and say, we are followers of Jesus. Because here's the thing. By touching and handling the dead body of Jesus, these guys can't even participate in the Passover that weekend. They're considered unclean, and so they are they are taking steps to identify with Jesus in a, in a new way here by saying, you know what? 
Passover, we don't even need it right now, right? We don't need to celebrate that because we are we are handling the true lamb, right? Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, he's identified as a rich man in Matthew 27, verse 57. He's identified as a member of the Jewish council in Mark chapter 15, verse 43. And he's also identified as a man who did not consent to killing Jesus. We see that in Luke 23, verses 50 through 51. Rich man, Matthew 27, 57. Member of the Jewish council, Mark 15, 43. Did not consent to killing Jesus, Luke 23, 50 through 51. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. We learned about him in John chapter 3. We also know that he supported Jesus after visiting him that night. John chapter 7, verse 50 through 53, Nicodemus stood up for Jesus and argued for his um, uh, true and valid uh, trial and, and, and wanted the people to avoid condemning him without really considering the facts, right? So these two men claim Jesus, claim his body, and take responsibility for it. Number two, the body was publicly buried in a well-known location. It's publicly buried in a well-known location. This fulfills the prophecy of Jesus being buried amongst the rich in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. Not only would he be crucified with the worst, he would be buried amongst the best, right? And how's that possible? Jesus doesn't have any money. Well, it's only sovereignly possible if God calls a rich man to follow Jesus. He compels that rich man to take responsibility for his body. And that's exactly what happens. John takes great care to identify rather than veil the physical location of this tomb. Now, keep in mind, John writes years after the resurrection, right? We're reading it as though these events are unfolding right before our eyes. John wrote this thing years after the resurrection. So the people that that get this gospel and are reading it, and they're doubting whether this is true or not, like John's just done the worst thing possible if he's trying to hide the truth of the resurrection, right? Because he's just told his readers, hey, here's where the body would have been. You can go check it right now, right? The readers at that time when this was first written could have read through this and said, I don't know if I believe this or not. Let's go check it. Like, he, he just gave us the treasure map. He just told us where to go find the body or where it was laid, right? Let's go check it out. Let's go check out that tomb. John is very intentional to help us see that everybody knew where the body was placed. And these two men aren't the only ones that knew where it was placed, right? You go to Matthew chapter 27, verse 61. Matthew's gospel account of this says, The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, actually, let me back up, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. These two women knew exactly where the body was. Their intent was to come back and finish the burial process. Mark chapter 15, verse 47. 
Verse 46, Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in its tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And then in Luke chapter 23, verse 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. All right. The details here debunk the wrong tomb theory and the stolen body theory, right? People want to say that, oh, the the disciples concocted this story because they accidentally went to the wrong tomb and they went to an empty tomb and they thought that Jesus was back from the dead and and yet his body still laid to rest in the tomb. Others want to say that the body was stolen. Um, And and so when the disciples went to see him, uh, the body was gone because some of his other disciples had stolen it. Some problems with this that we see from the text is, um, one, the Pharisees were prepared for this. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 62 through 66, the Pharisees go to Pilate and they said, this man predicted that he would come back from the dead. And we need to make sure that his disciples don't try to make up a story like that. And so they, they placed guards intentionally. So not only do Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus know where this body is placed, The Pharisees know where this body is placed because they go recruit soldiers to be placed in front of it so that nobody can steal it. The Pharisees would have loved for the wrong tomb to have been identified as empty. Think about this. The Pharisees would have had a field day with this. The disciples were running around telling everybody, hey, Jesus is back from the dead. Pharisees would have said, man, that can't be. Like, that's crazy. Let's go down there and check that tomb. They go down and check the tomb, and they're like, man, his body's still here. What, What in the, oh, they went to the wrong tomb. Right, And they would have dragged Jesus' body out because they could have cared less about Jesus. Right, They would have paraded that thing around town and said, here's the body of your Savior. He is certainly not back from the dead. But John shows us by carefully writing all these details that it was known where the body was. And if you wanted to go see it yourself in that day, you could because he told you exactly where to go. Hey, it's right near where he was crucified. There's a garden there. There's an empty tomb there. You can go see it yourself and it's only after the resurrection that the pharisees even uh try to convince people about this um stolen body theory matthew 28 11 through 15 they concoct the stolen body theory themselves right because they have no other answer it's not the wrong tomb they go to the right tomb they see the body's missing they've got to concoct something so they decide that oh man his body must have been stolen there's so much significance in this passage here The fact that the tomb was even close enough for the burial to happen so quickly. Look what it says there at the end of the passage. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Right? They've got to get him off the cross so that the land is not defiled. Right? So the the Jews are saying, get him down, get him down. Joseph... And Nicodemus say, hey, we'll take his body, right? But they got to do something with it quickly, right? Because the Jews are pressing in and saying, we can't defile, we can't defile our land, right? And so it just so happens, right? It just so happens that Joseph owns this tomb that's conveniently close, uh, located very closely to where Jesus is crucified. It says, because it was close at hand, that's why they chose to lay in there. They chose to lay him in a rich man's tomb, which was prophesied. 
they chose to lay him down as quickly as possible because why is that significant? Well, because Jesus has to be dead in the tomb for three days. And if they wait too long, they wait too long, then he can't raise to life on Sunday. He can't come back in time to verify other scriptures as well, right? And so all of this is so significant all the way down to the minute details. My encouragement to you today is to believe that he really died and to believe that he was publicly buried where people knew where the body was laid. And that gives us two implications here. Number one, people will always try to explain away the resurrection, abandoning logic due to sinful rebellion. Right? The Pharisees know all these same things that I'm telling you today. They were there. They saw all of it themselves as well. But when the resurrection happens, what do they say? Um, somebody must have taken his body. Right? The most probable thing is that he raised from, from the dead. But when you don't want to believe that, when you want to hang on to your sin, hang on to your rebellion, when you don't want to see yourself crucified, take up your cross and follow Jesus, you'll come up with anything to disprove the resurrection. People will always try to explain away the resurrection because of their sinful rebellion. But number two, what I want you to remember from this passage is that spiraling situations don't negate God's promises. Spiraling situations don't negate God's promises. They are always being fulfilled in the midst of what we would say are unstable circumstances. Spiraling situations don't negate God's promises. They are always being fulfilled in the midst of of these unstable circumstances. And I want to encourage you that that's happening right now in the midst of everything that's happening with the coronavirus. One of the things that we touched on in our D group Wednesday night with, with my guys, we're looking at first Thessalonians four and so much has changed about our life in such a short period of time, right? Like we've only, we've only been doing this for three weeks. Um, and in three weeks time, everything has changed so much, right? Things feel very unstable. But what was so encouraging to me during our D group time, we come to 1 Thessalonians 4, and the end of that passage is, is talking about encouraging each other about the day that Jesus comes back. And that's one thing that still remains stable, right? Everything else unstable right now. Everything's spiraling out of our control. But something that hasn't changed is the promise that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back, and that hasn't changed one bit. Coronavirus hasn't changed that at all. Coronavirus hasn't altered that aspect of future at all, right? It's altered sports future, right? NBA season not happening right now. MLB season not happening right now. College football season may not happen, right? Things are being altered and changed. What has not changed is the hope of the, the return of Jesus and our own resurrection. That hasn't changed, right? Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled, right? And then he goes on to talk about him coming back for us. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, encourage each other with the fact that while things are spiraling out of control and it looks like things are out of whack, they're really not. God's keeping his promises. He kept his promises on the cross. Jesus died exactly how he was supposed to. He was buried exactly how he was supposed to. God always remains in control, even in the bleakest of circumstances, right? And he still remains in control today, and he is coming back for us, all right? Application that I want to give you this morning. Keep believing the truths that your faith was founded upon. Keep believing the truths that your faith was founded upon, right? 
In no way should our faith be shaken by anything that's happening around us because nothing happening around us is, is taking away from the resurrection of Jesus, right? Second Timothy chapter three, Paul's talking to Timothy and he challenges him to believe the things that he believed when he was very young in life. Second Timothy three, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are capable to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says, Timothy, remember those things you learned in kids' class. Remember those things you learned in Sunday school. Remember those things you learned in children's church. Remember those things that you learned in training union for those that, that maybe remember the training union time on Sunday nights at Fayette Baptist Tabernacle, right? Remember the things that you learned when you were a kid. Right? The stories about Jesus dying on the cross and Jesus being buried in a tomb, those things haven't changed. Those things haven't changed. Joshua Harris recently walked away from the faith back over the summer, but probably months or, or maybe even years before then. He just made it public back in the summer. But a thing that he tweeted not long after that, he said, if you believe at 50 what you believed at 15, then you have not lived or you have denied the reality of your life. And I tweeted back to him and I said, really depends on what we're talking about still believing from 15 to 50. Because Paul would tell us we absolutely should keep believing the things that we believed at 15. We should keep believing the things that we believed at five, if it's the right things, right? I don't wanna mature and grow and get greater education that would leave me to, to abandon the faith, right? And to stop believing these things about Jesus dying and Jesus being buried and Jesus rising again in accordance to the scriptures. So let me encourage you this morning. Keep believing these truths. He died and he was buried. And as we're going to see next week, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Our, our family worship activities for, for this week that I want to leave you with before Tyson sings and closes us out. I want us to, to spend some time this week being intentional to pass these truths on to our kids and, and, and within our family. What are the truths about the resurrection that our faith is founded upon? Let's talk about the fact that he died on the cross. Let's talk about the burial of Jesus, right? These things lay the foundation, right? This factual evidence lays the foundation for believing and hoping in the resurrection. Let's talk about those truths this week. And then number two, get creative this week. You're going to have to make some new plans, some adjusted plans for how to celebrate the resurrection this week. We can't gather together as a church and have our Easter egg hunt and our cookout and celebrate the resurrection. We can't do some of the things that, that we would normally do. Next week's Easter service is going to be unlike any other Easter service we've ever, we've ever had, except maybe for the, the year we had it at Ryan's restaurant, right? When we first planted the church, we met at a restaurant for our Easter service. This is the next weirdest thing we've ever done for Easter, and that's to have to do a live stream where nobody can attend on Easter, right? We'll have to be new and adjusted ways for celebrating, but don't miss the opportunity to celebrate the resurrection this week individually and as a family, right? Leading up to Easter next week, let's make that the culmination of a week of celebration that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, and that Jesus is, is, is alive again today, right? And he can truly claim to be alive today because he did die and he was buried and the tomb is empty. And John gives us the evidence for that. Let me pray for us. 
God, we thank you so much for the truth that we've seen today, this morning. We thank you for this passage that in some ways is just a way to move the narrative forward. But when we pause and look at it long enough, we begin to see these are important details that, that are the foundation of our faith in a lot of ways. Um, that 1 Corinthians 15 says that we don't have meaningful faith without the resurrection. And we don't have a resurrection unless Jesus died. We don't have a, a, a true a claim to a resurrection unless we have an empty tomb. And to have an empty tomb, we have to know where that tomb is to verify that it's empty. And so, God, I thank you that John included the details here for us to see. Not only did it fulfill Scripture, but it gave evidence for the people who were alive at that time that the resurrection was real and true, that it was the most probable answer to everything that was being shared at that time. And while there are people who rejected it then, the Pharisees who concocted a story that, that, that certainly didn't even seem plausible, but it was the best way to answer their own sin and rebellion and how to stay in their own sinful state. God, we know there's people today that will try to disprove the resurrection. But God, help us to keep clinging tightly to the truth of it. And in the midst of uncertain times where things are spiraling out of our control, God, we thank you that you remain in control. We thank you for the, the passage in Acts 17 that tells us that because you have been raised from the dead, you are guaranteed to come back for us. God, help 1 Thessalonians 4 to be a great encouragement to us in the midst of uncertain times, that something remains very certain. And that's the fact that you are coming again with those who have gone before us, those believers who have gone before us. You are coming with them. And our great hope is that resurrection will occur for all of us. And we'll be with you forever. We thank you and praise you for that this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.